This is the Mindful Experiment Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Vic. Excited that you're here. This podcast is all about diving deep into the mind and understanding this experiment or this game we call life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The biggest battle we will ever have to face is the battle between you and you. It's the battle of taking your mind to that limit and then breaking through. On the Mindful Experiment podcast, we will share concepts, universal laws, and interviewing individuals who have done just that, who have gone through the dark times and through those moments, allowed their light to shine bright. I'm your host, Dr. Vic Manzo, and I want to thank you for listening to the podcast and taking this journey with me as we discover different avenues to break through those limits, expand your reality, and evolve into the person you desire to be. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome. This is Dr. Vic. And you're listening to The Mindful Experiment. Today's guest, I had a blast interviewing uh, this individual. He is uh, a mastermind in a sense because he brings something to the table that I see personally and professionally across the board. I see it in every arena Every private sector, public sector, this just happens. It's the polarization of America. And I've always been told that this polarization, there's a design behind it and all this stuff. But after being through this interview, I learned so much more about it as this amazing individual, James Hogan, really breaks it down. Over three decades James Hogan has developed a reputation as the guy to call in a public relations crisis. He's highly sought after by the media for his expert commentary, insight, and advice. Jim has navigated executives and high-profile clients through the glare of TV cameras, social media, and the front-page investigations resulting in award-winning awards, including the industry's prestigious Silver Anvil for the Best Crisis Management Campaign in North America, as well as the awards for ethics in public relations. In addition to crisis management, Jim developed long-term communication strategies for Canadian and international clients and has become a globally renowned advocate for honesty, ethics, and integrity in public discourse. 
The extraordinary range of organizations that Jim has helped speaks volumes, from Shell Canada to Shell Global to the David Suzuki Foundation, from Ballard Power Systems and Canadian Pacific Railroad to the Dalai Lama Center. Jim led the Providence of British Columbia's Green Energy Task Force on Community Relations and First Nations Partnerships and works with clients such as the BC Law Society, BC Hydro, QLT Therapeutics, the Government of British Columbia, the City of Vancouver, the University of British Columbia, Vancouver General Hospital, Vancouver International Airport, among many others. James Hogan is the author of three books, Do It Right Thing, Do the Right Thing, PR Tips for Skeptical Public, Climate Cover-Up, The Crusade to Deny Global Warming, and I'm Right and You're an Idiot, The Toxic, toxic State of Public Discourse and How to Clean It Up. Jim has a strong interest in public relations as a force for honest public conversation and has founded the influential website, D. Smog Blog, chosen as one of Times Magazine's best blogs in 2011. Like I said, guys, this guy is an amazing individual. I had such a blast interviewing him, and I learned so much uh, about how I can, even for myself, minimize polarization, conversa polarized conversations, how I can be more understanding, open up more to love, so that I can really appreciate the individual I'm having a conversation with, regardless if we don't agree. So with no further ado, here's James Hogan. James, I'm excited to have you on. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to read your book. I think the monkey's on there and the title of your book, I'm Right and You're an Idiot. I just, I think it hits home in so many ways with society today. I'm excited to dive into this thing. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think no matter what side of the political debate you're on, whether you're on the right or the left, that chances are you're doing too much shouting and not enough listening. <laughs> what made you come up with the, uh, I'm curious about the monkey thing. It's just like the monkey see, no monkey, no, no see, hear and uh, say, I think, or I forget how that saying goes. Yeah, well, no, I decided to kind of like, if you look closely at those monkeys, they all have their ears plugged. Yes. And, and I, I just thought that it was a good image because so much, so much of the problems that we encounter, whether it's private you know, in our relationships with people or, or public, whether it's on Facebook or, you know, at a public meeting, comes from not listening. Yeah. And uh, I think we've become far too good at not listening to people who disagree with us. I agree. I think in society today, I, that's why I just love the title of your book. Again, I haven't read it yet. I'm looking forward to diving deep. But it's one of those things where as society today, we're, we're, we're so easily polarized than we are um, like really having real conversations and actually taking a moment to just listen to someone's else opinion doesn't mean we have to agree to it, but at least listen to it. Yeah, I, I remember when I, uh, the title came from a, a lunch that I had with a fellow named Steve Rizel, who was the right-hand person of Daniel Yankelovich, the great American uh, uh, guru on dialogue. And he, uh, Steve, I, you know, I sat down with Steve because I wanted to interview Yankelovich and I thought the best way to do that was through Steve. And we were having lunch and I told him that the working title of the book back then was Duped and How. Mm. And, uh, and he said, why would you want to have a title like that on your book? I mean, it starts the whole conversation out in a polarizing way. You might as well just say, I'm right and you're an idiot. 
And oh, so after I finished the book, I was kind of going around trying to think. And I thought, I'll just go, I'll read the book and I will pick out phrases that people said that were catchy. And the first one I ran into was that. And so I phoned Steve. He was like horrified that I was going to, that I was asking him to use that as the title. But that's where it came from. And so he, you know, it was almost like the warning. <laughs> but it, it really it kind of gets to it gets to an experience, I think, that all of us are having. Um, I, you know, you, we can look at the world and say, what the hell is going on? You know, you can't, you know, there doesn't seem to be any, it seems to be like fact free. You know, there doesn't seem to be any difference between an opinion and a fact and Anybody can just say whatever they want to, call people names. And so you can look at it as quite negative, or you can look at it and say, finally, people are starting to pay attention. You know, we're starting to get engaged. And one of the things that we're all learning is that, you know, just like you can pollute the natural environment, you can pollute the, the public square. And we're all seeing it. And it's kind of it's the sort of warlike way that we disagree with each other and the unyielding one-sidedness that, that we see on, especially if it's an issue that we care about, you know, like gun control or immigration or climate change. It seems to be that the more important the issue is, the more narrow-minded people are about it. Yeah, that's so true. Um, and, and one of the questions that come right into my head immediately, cause I'm, I'm a very curious individual about like, how did we get there? Like, how did this, did this just come out of nowhere? Was it, what, what, what do you think is got us to this point to be so polarized with things? Well, there's a, there's a couple of, uh, reasons I think, I mean, I, I started to, uh, um, become interested in, I'm a PR person, a corporate PR guy. So I'm not a lefty by any stretch of the imagination, but I do care about uh, environmental issues. I've, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of my, you know, youth in the mountains of teaching. I was a ski instructor and used to ride my bike all over the Tour de France mountains and following where Lance Armstrong was going on the tour. Uh, and I, uh, so, you know, I, I love nature. That's kind of what, you know, Canadians love nature. And I, I remember watching how these debates about environmental issues and how kind of, um, I don't know, just kind of, you know, I guess warlike is the best way to describe it, you know. They're, and, and I used to, when I first started looking at it, I thought um, as a communications person, like a lot of my clients would be, you know, targeted by environmental groups. And, uh, and we would be, so we'd have to think about, you know, how do we respond to these accusations? And, and uh, as, as I learned more about it and got more involved in it, you, you, you start to, as a, as a professional communications person, you start to notice these gaps between what people think and what's actually going on. And, um, and I, early on, I used to think that part of the reason for these gaps and people's misunderstanding of issues was that there were kind of bad actors out there pumping misinformation into public discourse. So people were confused. And so that's what my, you know, I thought it was a misinformation problem. But the more I learned about it, the more I realized that the problem 
wasn't just misinformation. It was this kind of tribalizing of the way we process information. And so once you can, once you can tribal, once you can massage what you might call my side bias into certain kinds of information, open-minded thinking just shuts down. And so I started to uh, interview, I, uh, when I was writing this book, I decided I would uh, talk to people who um, were experts in the psychology of teams. And I met this guy named Jonathan Haidt, brilliant uh, moral psychologist who studies the psychology of teams. And he said, he, he was a very interesting guy. And he said that, um, that human beings are designed uh, by evolution uh, to unite into teams, to divide against other teams, and to be blinded uh, to the truth. So that he said that once you engage in the psychology of teams, open-minded thinking shuts down. And so one of the things that I started to see was that people in the public relations business, in my business, actually knew that and were working to divide people. And so I came to believe, and I, I still believe, that the problem of polluted public discourse or the kind of uh, public confusion around so many important issues is not just that there's misinformation out there, but it's that, pe that people have become convinced this isn't something people like us believe. If you do believe this, you can't be one of us, you must be one of them. Once you once you create that kind of tribal way of looking at the world, and it's essentially you, you, you create a situation where you can't be wrong, then you've created a situation where you can't think, you can't have public conversations, no one is listening, there's no to and fro anymore. You, you essentially undermine uh, the people's confidence in public discourse. And people start to, you know, it, the public square becomes more fact-free. Uh, people lose confidence in objectivity itself. It's like, you know, everyone's just in it for themselves. Everybody's biased. You really can't trust anyone to be doing anything else except, you know, looking out for their own interest. Uh, and so objectivity itself just gets undermined and public conversations just deteriorate into name calling. And you hit, you hit a lot of points that uh, got my mind running. Cause I mean, I, this is kind of like, I, I say a phrase, like sometimes when you're in a group, nothing to be wrong with being in a group, but if you lose your individual individualism um, or being in, being an individual or you said open-minded, um, then all of a sudden you just mute and become part of that. And I think it's kind of interesting when they kind of focused, PR was focusing on putting people in groups. Was there a sense of like to have more control in a sense, like control people's thought processes, or is it more of like just to control their information so that if you can control the information, you can control the behavior? See, I think that what I just described is essentially what's meant by smoke and mirrors. Right, you just undermine people's confidence in the whole process itself. So there isn't really even the space to have the conversation anymore because people's confidence 
in public conversation is gone. And so, and I, and I think the interesting thing about it is that there's a, I mean, social media is a huge part of this problem because the way the algorithms work on Facebook or on YouTube, you know, and Google and Twitter uh, is that the algorithms are basically there. They're, they're kind of a surveillance tool. And so they watch what people are doing and then they make these decisions for us on what we'd like to see next, whether it's on our news feed or it's in advertising. And they, they, they're, they're essentially trying to sell advertising. And so they're looking for emotions that are what I would consider like fast emotions. So fast emotions are emotions like anger, hate, resentment, fear. Slow emotions are compassion, understanding, love. So Facebook and these algorithms of social media essentially prefer the fast emotions because those are the emotions that get eyeballs and allow them to sell advertising. So there's nothing nefarious going on. It's just a, it's almost like a, a technology trap that there's this unintended um, effect of social, these social media algorithms that, that um, favor misinformation and the sort of tribal nature of misinformation over information and understanding and sort of more kind of empathy and warm heartedness. So that is a big part of this and why the unreasonableness that you see in the public square is growing so quickly is because of Facebook and other social media sites. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more there. I mean, I see that consistently on a, a time and time basis, even in just simple dialogue, how, quick things can escalate when it's like, hold up, wait a minute. Just, it was just a question. Don't, you know, don't take that out of context here. <laughs> I mean, you can't read my tone through a, for, through a 2d experience. <laughs> right. So, but when you're sure, like, you know, kind of like the, I mean, I am very familiar with the algorithms of Facebook and, you know, all Google and how they extract information to kind of get you to, you know, again, those fast emotions as, you know, with the anger, hate and fear. Um, have you heard of that documentary on Netflix called the, the great hack? Yeah, there's a, uh, one of the new chapters in my book is basically about that. And it's the, uh, it's titled the, uh, and is titled Steve Bannon's full service propaganda machine. Wow. I can't wait to read it. Um, because my background originally when I was in undergrad was techno, uh, computer science. So understanding oh. technology and how it, uh, uh, plays a huge role in so many different ways. I, I, I kind of knew like a few years in, as I started to see social media, you know, Facebook and stuff grow, I was like, that's going to be used. And a lot of these other things are going to be used in ways that, um, uh, are going to be to, I don't want to say control, but kind of influence or shift uh, uh, decision-making and so forth. That's right. And so so some of it, to go back to your earlier question, which I didn't completely answer, some of this is purposeful, intentional. So there are people like me, uh, strategy people, who essentially use this dividing strategy. Um, and But then there's also 
there's a, a lot of it is human nature. So if you take this, this kind of tribal way um, of go, going about living in, in the world and you have people who are manipulating, manipulating us into thinking that this is a kind of a tribal issue and we need to fight for it. Um, then you have this kind of shut, shutting down of open-minded thinking, but there's all that also happens kind of, it's part of human nature. One of the guys I interviewed for my book was, uh, or is a uh, professor at Yale Law School, who's um, not just a law professor, but also a sociologist. And he and a group of American um, uh, social scientists are studying something they call cultural cognition. And the way cultural cognition works is, he says, is it's almost as if we want to be misled, that this, that these these tribal forces, these team forces are, you know, as powerful as thirst and hunger. So if we can convince someone that this isn't something people like us believe, and if you, if you do believe this, you can't be one of us, you must be one of them. If we can convince someone that climate change is about that, if we can convince someone that ocean acidification is about that or gun control, then, then essentially it almost Facts don't matter. It's it's the, the, the public square becomes, if you can do that, becomes fact-free. So it is a way of kind of advancing your interests by muddying and, and tribal and polarizing public discourse. The thing that's odd about this is that even if you're on the right side of the issue, you can end up falling into this. Uh, one of the guys I, I interviewed uh, Talked has written about something called the advocacy trap, where he says, uh, when someone is an advocate for something and they speak publicly about it and someone disagrees with them, you know, their first reaction might be, well, that person's just wrong. So they try to correct them that, but their critics persist. So they start to question their intentions and their motivation. And before you know it, that person who's disagreeing with them is not just wrong, they're a wrongdoer. And it's not just that you are having, a, uh, it becomes a battle between uh, David and Goliath, between good and evil. And you have this kind of almost like a, uh, that sort of allows you to do anything. And, and, and as I watched this and I started talking to these people, one of the things I realized is that it doesn't matter whether you're right. In the way you engage with people, you can be just as much of a problem as the person who's wrong. I mean, you know, tell me, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen in a public square? Somebody who's in denial or somebody who's just so self-righteous that no one can stand listening to them? Yeah, that's very true. Um yeah, it, it, you bring up a lot of uh, uh, great points, and I and I could see the whole. This is why, I like triggers, when we put labels on words as somebody being, uh, I don't know, I, I, me being in the health world, I see it all the time. If you're, well, like vaccines, for example, if you're against vaccines or for vaccines, but you can't be in the middle, or you can't, it's either one or the other, right? Right. And and I and I see that again, Republican or Democrat or um, this this, and I think that sometimes with the the mind at a neuroscience level, we like the the options of two. It makes it easy for us. And I don't and know, does, does that play a role in it also? Why it's like one or the other? 
Yeah, that's right. And that's exactly the problem. That's the whole I'm right and you're an idiot problem, right? Because, you know, you come to believe something and care about it. And then someone just rejects it or even, you know, is, um, um, you know, rejects it in, a, in, a, in an embarrassing way. I mean, people don't like to be wrong. In, and especially, they don't like to be wrong in public. Uh, uh, Carol Tavris, when I interviewed her, she wrote a book called I'm Right, or uh, uh, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. And she said that as soon as people make decisions, it doesn't even matter, it could even be that you make this decision to do something or say something, and it was of not much consequence, but as soon as you do it, you start to look for reasons to justify why your decision to do that was right. And you start to reject things that would suggest that your decision was wrong. And she said, that's because um, this, it's the power of self-justification that is basically trying to help you avoid this uncomfortable feeling of being wrong, particularly in public. So if you're, uh, she says that you don't, we don't just have to worry about, you know, bad, evil people doing terrible things. We have to also be concerned about good people doing terrible things uh, and thinking that they're good people. <laughs> that is like a whole different kind of problem, right? Yes. And so, and so w when we live in a world like that, it's not enough to just have the facts right and be on the right side of the issue. You have to be good at human relations so that you can actually warm up the ground with people so that you can have conversations that that move beyond um you know um fights and how would you say someone can um kind of go down that path because you know the you know this, the polarization like i said I, I i see it in all aspects and and as you said social media i think is accelerating this and as more we become social and get more into social media type, uh, avenues for so many different things, I think it's it could potentially make it worse. What's your thoughts on that? And then what are ways can we slowly start to move away and, and, and break down this, this, this deep polarization that we have? Yeah, and, and I, I, it's not that this is um, easy um, or oddly that hard because <laughs> This is, as I, as I describe some of these things, these are things we do already, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to deal with some pretty unreasonable stuff just to be a father <laughs> or, or to be a husband or a wife, right? right. I mean, we have yeah. to, you know, we have to give some ground. And, and I, I think that uh, for the sake of the relationship, right? And so I think that one of the first steps is uh, being aware of of the way you the way you react and the way that you get triggered and the way you trigger others or that they get triggered so just being kind of mindful of it you almost it's almost as if you you need to increase your awareness of that kind of dynamic and try to avoid it uh, a lot of the time we're more interested in being right than we are in trying to kind of 
carry on a conversation where you actually may change a mind. You may change somebody's mind. And so, so very quickly we get into the argument, but I think it's better to sort of, you know, that self-awareness, that self-policing, and then basically trying to kind of, um, there was uh, one of the fellows I interviewed for the uh, book is uh, a, a Vietnamese monk named Thich Nhat Hanh. And uh, he was, uh, he, he was in uh, Vancouver and he was, he, we met with him, David Suzuki, who's a Canadian environmentalist and scientist, public educator up here. And I, and the mayor of Vancouver basically spent a few hours in an afternoon having tea with him and talking. And uh, in the middle of this conversation, Thich Nhat Hanh said, you don't need to tell people they're destroying the planet. They know they're destroying the planet. You need to deal with the despair. And he was talking to us about, he said, you know, you should, uh, you should, uh, he was trying to convince us we needed to meditate. He said, you'd be much better working on environmental issues if you, uh, you know, if you're, you clean up the inner ecology. So. And, and he said, so he's telling us that. So I said, you're not saying that David Suzuki shouldn't be an activist, are you? And this guy, he, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen him, but he's one of these people who has this kind of power of spirit, you know, that he's like a big soul. And he was like about two feet away from me. And he looked at me like right in the eye. And like it wasn't just right in the eye. It was almost like I could feel he was like looking right into my ass, right into my heart. And he said, uh, speak the truth, but not to punish. Speak the truth, but not to punish. And I, you know, I, I felt like somebody had hit me in the solar plexus. <laughs> it, it was like, I mean, it, I, God had, I really felt like I was like caught red handed, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Because I am oh, like yeah. a reactive person. And, uh, you know, right, you know, self-righteousness is not too far away from me, you know, <laughs> at any at any point in time. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I was walking off the um, stage that turned off, it was this all, this was all filmed. And uh, as I was walking off the stage, my wife was in the front row and she said, you heard what he said, right? Speak the truth, but not to punish speak and I anyway so I haven't ever forgotten that and and I and I think that the the sort of just the awareness of our own you know just being aware that we too could unknowingly be under the influence of bias that I could be wrong you could be wrong that's so that is like a healthy way to be and, it, and it's a way to extract ourselves from this kind of ridiculous polarized fight that never gets us anywhere no you're so, so true so that is part of i think is it's just the awareness of that i think that's helpful yeah i think i think the the, the key for anything in life right it's all about awareness first and uh um it, but one of the great things they were mentioning and, and i always mess up his name ning nick dick nan tick not han there we go. Yeah, I love that and him and all the work he has done. But it's one of the things that he's, you know, when you're saying, well, I could be wrong, I really that that lets you keep your ego in check. Yes. And just doesn't let you think, oh, I got this, I know this, uh, you know, and lets this 
other side, when you let the ego lead, kind of take you down path that's just not, you know, as you said, speak the truth, but not the harm. I mean, that's such a powerful statement. Yeah, I mean, it is entirely possible that the person that you're disagreeing with on something that is important uh, is just wrong and, and a totally good person they, who's just got it wrong. And, and so the last thing you want to do is shove them around so much that they're never going to agree with you, right? <laughs> uh, and and so, one, so one of the things that happened after Thich Nhat Hanh left Vancouver, he, he was interviewed by uh, Oprah Winfrey. And uh, it was a beautiful, like, 10-minute interview where she was asking him about something he'd written about in one of his books. And it was uh, deep listening. And so she said, well, what, what do you can you explain what you mean by deep listening? And he said, uh, so there's someone that you have a conflict with, that there, things are, have gone badly with someone. And you go up to them and you say, you know, you know, I care about how, uh, about our relationship and I feel like I haven't been listening and that's not my intention. You know, I do want to know how, what you're thinking and what you're feeling and so I just, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, if, if you want to, you know, if there's something you want to say to me, I'm, I'm going to do my best to listen and, and be more respectful. And so if the person he said it, uh, if the person that you say this to uh, believes you uh, and thinks you're sincere, maybe they'll actually start to, uh, to tell you what they're thinking. And he said that the purpose behind this process of deep listening should be to let the person just kind of empty their heart. The, pur the purpose is not to get everything straight. So if somebody says something that's wrong or that's bitter, you don't react to it. You just let it go. You deal with it, you know, next week. You just keep listening, no matter how painful it is. And, uh, and, and I, that, that is this, this process and as I of deep listening. And, and one of the things that I realized was that that was for me, I've been in the public relations business for 30 plus years. And that it seemed to me was that's kind of the essence of human communication is listening. Like it's, it's when we listen first, I mean, uh, Stephen Covey, what did he used to say of uh, seek first to understand and then to be understood. And that is the trick. It's not the other way around, right? It's not that you try to, people aren't sitting around waiting for you to tell them what to think. And so it's in this kind of process. And, and I think part of the deep listening that he didn't talk about, which I've heard other people talk about, is listening to people's feelings, like trying to kind of get a sense of what they're feeling and what you're feeling and the sort of emotional dialogue that's taking place under the kind of um, the verbal uh, conversation. And so I think that, you know, to go, that, that is kind of the answer to your question is beyond the, the self-awareness and self-policing, that learning to be a deeper listener. And, and then once you actually are armed with all that kind of understanding of this other person, uh, trying to create a story that is more um, 
you know, we, we see the world through stories and we need to tell stories that are more pluralistic stories of us as opposed to stories of us and them. And I, so I think that's the next step is to kind of, once you actually know what's going on in that person's mind, trying to have that con that conversation or that story of us to, to engage in that. That's, that's uh, I think, yeah, you hit some really good points again. And, and I think one of the, the big things is the deep listening and, and listening to more of the tone, like your, the feelings, the tone, the body language, instead of being so um, listening to what the words they're using and reacting off that. Uh, plays a huge role in that. Do you think that, because, you know, sometimes people can do good things, but they may have it wrong or something along those lines. Let's say there's someone who feels deep down they're doing something good for humanity or good in general, but they have the facts wrong and they're not. How do you, I know you don't want to like rattle the feathers too much because then they're just going to shut off. But how do you have a conversation with someone like that and just try to express, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. See, I, I think it's, again, it's this, it's almost like the order um, of the way you engage someone. We have, we have to change it from convincing first to um, understanding first, right? So um, it's like, it, uh, in a sense, one of the things I realized as I was talking to people and about the state of public discourse is that the space for conversations uh, doesn't exist. So that you can't have the conversation if there's nowhere to have it. And what I mean by that is that if you, if you live in a public square where the first thing someone does when you open your mouth is decide whose side you're on before they decide to agree or disagree with you. That you essentially, when that is happening, when you polarize things like that, then you, you essentially have shut down the space to have the conversation. So the job has to be, how do you open it up? The job is not at that point when you recognize that the public space for that conversation isn't even there. Uh, that so the job then at that point is not how do you convince someone of what the facts actually are, but actually how do you get to a point where that person would even listen to you, uh, so that you could later on have that conversation about what the what the facts are, and I I think that we just have to be super careful uh, to go through this process of opening up common ground. That's the way I think about common ground. Common ground in my mind is not like splitting the baby in half. So, you know what I mean? Like that is not a good idea. We don't want the baby split in half, right? No, no, not at all. <laughs> like reality is reality. What's right is what's right. You don't have to, you know, divide it in half for you. but trying to kind of create a space where you can have a conversation with somebody else who thinks almost the same way you do you know, except they have, you know, they, they have different point of view, but they think they're right too. They, and so that doesn't mean that both of you are right. So common ground to me is more just opening up the space where you can have the conversation and 
being, you know, and ways to do that, or that's essentially all the things I've been talking about here last little bit is that the deep listening, the, the, you know, speak the truth, but not to punish the, the idea that we want to bring more warm heartedness into conversations. That is really about trying to create the space to have the conversation, not get right to the end of the conversation at the beginning when really everybody is so tribalized that they're just going to disagree with you because they just think you're on the other side and they think it's a fight. So, so it's just, a, I think, uh, part, you know, one of the things I always used to say to my clients is that communication is actually a two-way process that we need to, that ultimately if we want someone to listen to us, we have to listen to them. And it's probably better that we start. It's not going to hurt. Um, doesn't mean just because you're listening to someone, even if you think they're dead wrong and that what they're thinking is stupid and evil, just allowing yourself to open that space where, because if you can get somebody to actually feel like you care, if somebody that you disagree with feels that you're, that they've been heard and that they're respected, I would argue that they're more likely to change their mind than the, than the opposite if, if they weren't feeling respected or heard. And so that, again, is that sort of making sure that people, that you're listening in such a sincere way that the other person recognizes that. That is the opening up of this space for the conversation. I like that. I think that's uh, really solid in a lot of ways and can definitely change a lot of this um, arguments and, 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 and the pol is polarization or the bickering, I like to say sometimes that you'll see on social media or TV and things like that. Um, when you when we talked about like starting out, like, you know, creating that polarization, would you, what do you think about when someone says something like, um, oh, the haters are going to hate? yada yada because that phrase has never resonated with me but i'm just curious to think what's your what's your opinion on that um i don't know you know i i don't uh it's kind of true in some ways <laughs> <laughs> it is i know but but i but i i'm not sure that um you know i i get in i get in um debates with very good friends who are much smarter than me on a lot of these issues uh, on these types of, you know, these situations about how you kind of disagree. Because on one hand, I think it's super important that if somebody's an advocate, you know, I think, thank God for Bill McKibben, you know. I may not like what Bill McKibben says about whoever, uh, you know, about, you know, everybody at Shell being evil or whatever, but you got to thank God that there are people like Martin Luther King or Bill McKibben or people like that who are willing to take the little bit of time they have on earth and devote it to trying to make things better. Um, so you want, one of the big problems in a society that has as many problems as ours does is the, is people, you know, uh, the Dalai Lama says uh, we're raising uh, a generation of, bystanders and uh you do not we don't want that you know so when you have when somebody bothers 
you got to give them uh, an applause, I, I think. So I'm not saying that we that you should give up on the passion that we want more passion. We don't want less. And uh, and we want more speech. I, I'm not a big advocate of silencing people, whether you're using it, you, whether you're doing it through calling somebody names or you're doing it through science or facts. You know, we should encourage uh, people speaking up. Um, but at the same time, I think there's no reason that you can't be 100 percent with the truth and also 100 percent with respect. And so I think. That is difficult. <laughs> you have to pay attention to become better. And I think ultimately, we all have to get better at that. And we have to get, we, can, we have to be better uh, communicators, which means we have to be better storytellers and better listeners. Um, you know, no matter how good we are at it, we, we, I think the way the world is, is a strong indication we need to get better at it. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, you know, I don't think I really directly answered your question, but <laughs> and I apologize for that. But, but, yeah. but in, in a way, you know, there is hate out there. Uh, there's some terribly evil things that people believe, and uh, you know, I'm not saying that we should be more reasonable with evil. Um, you know, there's some things you can't have a conversation with, but that's not most things. No, and I agree. And I, and I love how you said it's okay to be 100% right, but be 100% respectful. Uh, or being right, but be respectful, be respectful still. And uh, I think when you come to that place, because I know I need to work on that. For That's for that's clearly sure I need to. And But it's, I think it's also when you start to really take the time to listen to where someone else is coming from, even if it's a polar opposite of where you are, would you agree that this is then being human and really appreciating the other human you have in front of you. Absolutely. That's, that's exactly. And I think that's what, I think that's what the Dalai Lama means when he says we need more warm heartedness. Yeah. And I think that, that, I mean, Dalai Lama has a lot of sayings. I love. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. There's not many people. I like to, you know, have conversations and question things just so I can learn more. But uh, he's someone I, I don't usually uh, have that many questions to go against. <laughs> he seems to have a good grip on things. <laughs> he does, definitely. I'll tell you that much. Um, you know, anything else that you would add? And because we have awareness and deep listening to kind of, you know, kind of change this polarization, truly really to have more understanding of where the other person's coming from. Is there any other things you would add to that? Well, I, I, I want I add one um, I think one more point, and that would be that, you know, in a world where, you know, where, where, where the climate's warming and uh, where uh, there's so much suffering, um, where we have these problems with immigration and environment, and this terrible things that have happened with these mass shootings recently in that kind of world, it's really easy for people to feel despair at when we look to our leaders and we see the kind of the bickering, you know, the sort of almost inability to, uh, to, to, to actually do something that could help with the problem. That I think that there's a, 
Well, there's almost always another side to these things that uh, you may not like Donald Trump calling people names, but I would argue that there are more people engaged in politics in ways they probably always should have been because of Donald Trump and, uh, and people like him. And so I think that there's a reason to be hopeful because uh, the world is, uh, you know, we can get better. And it's actually, you know, the, all the things that I've been talking about are things I learned from all these incredible people, maybe 70 or 80 of them that I interviewed for my book. Um, these are not things that are so foreign that, not, that we can't understand or we can't do it ourselves. These are all like things we know. And so I think we can become better and we can take advantage of the opportunities that even things that seem evil, uh, there's, there's a sort of an opening, uh, uh, you know, a possibility that we can make things better. But I think ultimately it's something that starts with us. And when I started writing the, my book, I, I thought I was writing about the public square, you know, I, and I thought of it as outside. I, I didn't realize that Peter Senge spent a lot of time with me. What I learned from Peter Senge is that, that the quality of an intervention is determined by the inner quality of the intervener, which is something we actually have control over. So we can actually, we can be better. We can, you know, we can be better storytellers, better communicators. We can start to contribute to the solutions rather than the problems. I love that. I think that that that's a really sound uh, uh, putting it together, and I think that can change a lot of the everything you mentioned here. Really, and it's stuff we do, right? It, you, as you said earlier, these are things that we do. It's not like some crazy formula or anything along those lines. Yeah. Um, so, really, really good stuff here. Uh, what? How can people get a hold of your book and and uh, get access to it? So uh, you just Google I'm right and you're an idiot. You can find it on Amazon, but there's also a website that you can buy it from the uh, publisher on I'm right and you're an idiot. Very awesome. Um, one of the questions I like to ask before we, we wind down is if you can share a message with yourself that you know now that you would love to share 10 years ago who you were, um, what would that be? Ah. Uh, I, <laughs> well, you know, oddly, it's a very odd thing, but sort of, uh, you know, take the board out of your own eye before you uh, try to take the sliver out of someone else's. Ooh, that's deep. I like that. And does that follow along the, the kind of thing of your saying, like to, uh, as Stephen Covey says, seek to understand and to be understood? Yeah. Right. And it's, it's a kind of a, you know, it's, I know that's a kind of a biblical uh, saying, or it is a biblical saying, but uh, that I think that a lot of these so-called spiritual uh, aphorisms, this kind of advice from that we, we get from spiritual leaders is actually quite practical. And for me, that's a, you know, I, I think you've got you've to gotta bring as much quality to the table as you possibly can. <laughs> That's <laughs> no, very, very true. I mean, to me, listening to you, you, everything you shared, I think it's really just like, you know, when you're in a conversation, it's how much love can you bring to that table? Because to me, I truly believe love is really uh, a deep under just to have understanding. To Absolutely. We need know. way, way more love. 
And I think too, it's, it's, I think this is where it, it, it just plays a huge role. So I love it. Um, how can people get connected with you, reach out to you and, and so forth? Um, I, well, you can, uh, I think the best way to do it is through the website. Uh, I'm right. And you're an idiot. And uh, you can just connect with me there. Awesome. James, I want to uh, thank you for having you on the show, on the show. This was uh, enlightening, uh, wonderful uh information i think you your book and everything you're doing i think really just hits america across the board it's not one arena i think it's just everything uh in the health field for where i'm at i see it all the time um and then of course in politics and, and i can go on and on but uh, i really think you bring a really great solution to it so i uh, appreciate all the work that you're doing well thank you so much for for spending some time with me thank you for listening to the podcast For past shows, please visit www.empoweryourreality.com. I hope this show inspired you and added to your life to help you on the journey to rediscover who you really are. To connect with us on Facebook, please visit www.facebook.com forward slash Dr. Vic Manzo. Check us out on Twitter. The handle is Dr. Vic 21. Follow us on Instagram, www.instagram.com forward slash Dr. Vic Manzo. If you were inspired by the podcast, pay it forward by sharing it with someone who you know can benefit from it. Thank you again for listening to the Mindful Experiment podcast, sharing paths to help you rediscover your infinite potential. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you found this episode to be inspirational, pay it forward by sharing it with someone that you know can benefit from this. If this is your first time tuning in, please follow us, connect with us so you don't miss another amazing episode. And until next time, keep rocking and rolling.